From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello. Good morning. Okay, so today I want to talk through three more roles. These are the last three on the uh, list that I'd found about uh, roles of a lead pastor, and we'll unpack them a bit and then have some deeper questions to get get into. Okay, so the first role here is a leadership development champion. Um, When I think about this role, I think one of the things we try to do here at Summit is be leaders of leaders. So we try to replicate leadership the ability to raise leaders up in other people. Mm-hmm. That was something that I actually uh, didn't expect to see when I first came here. Like I didn't, I had always understood leadership as like, and maybe this be, is because of my smaller church background. Like you have one leader and then you have people who are like specialists or operatives in certain roles. Um, and it, it, it was surprising to me to see that the culture is okay, we have one leader, but we also want to develop other leaders so that they can multiply and develop other leaders. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, what's the wisdom behind that? And is there a level down the chain at which leadership development becomes impossible? And so is there a leader inside of everyone? Or are are there certain people that are set apart for leadership and certain people that are just never going to get there? I mean, I think... I think all of us are called to leadership in some form or another. I think the, our capacity for leadership will determine kind of where we are in in the flow chart, so to speak, right? Um, but, I mean, every person is called to lead in some way, whether it's a mom leading her children or husband leading his family or, you know. So so all of us have, have some form of, of leadership that we should be engaging in. But we have different giftings, different capacities for leadership, and I think that changes, you know, and determines maybe where, like I said, where you are on the flow chart. I think from a practical perspective, though, it's um, it's deeply important for us to develop leaders, um, and I think some churches have maybe forsaken discipleship for leadership. You know, they they confuse the two to some degree, but um, but just. As a means of survival, um, just from an organizational perspective, you have to be raising up leaders um, because if it's just about my singular leadership as the as the senior pastor, then at some point I'm not going to be here. So if I haven't done a good job of raising up other leaders, then my leadership and whatever I've done, whatever we've accomplished, it, it ends with me to some degree. You know, of course, the, God is bigger than that, but. Um, but if, if we want to be a multiplying church, then we have to raise up leaders. Um, you know, we, we talk about, maybe in the last episode, we talked a little bit about, you know, with church planning, you know, it's not just about financial resources, it's about human resources. Yeah. And so that's one of the things we overlook sometimes um, is that it is deeply practical to raise up leaders because you will need them to do bigger things than what you can accomplish on your own. So I think it's a, a means of survival um, at its most basic. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think churches struggle is because they haven't done a good job of developing a leadership pipeline of any kind. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this uh, doing this well results in what uh, I think this was 
I don't know. For me, it was made popular watching the New England Patriots, like the next man up mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think that's kind of where we land with this whenever we are have a culture of leadership? Like if like you were saying, Mel, if, if you go down for some reason, then you have someone who can come in and step mm-hmm. in and take on leadership. And they're, they're not going to be exactly the same, but it, it'll they'll be able to lead at least. Yeah. And that's different from like, uh, I don't know, I, I didn't watch the rise and fall of Mars Hill, but uh, and I'm sure there's lots of other reasons why it came apart <laughs> but in that case is that a case where you have like a really strong leader like one guy and then when he's gone that the whole thing just can't stay together anymore is, did that did that play into why it wasn't able to be fixed after he was removed let's say well so there are still some mars hill campuses that became independent churches that are still functioning. So there were some leaders there who were able to take some of that and to keep moving and keep going. It certainly isn't what it was. And I think a lot of that has to do with that there was a whole lot built on a single uh, personality, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so there is some danger in that for sure. Yeah, and, and I think that was a bigger issue, too. It was not just, and this is not to be a dissection of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, mm-hmm. but <laughs> there was a, you know, there was a cultural issue that was that was problematic. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we've talked a lot about culture in the past, but I think culture is the most important part. And so even if you're not um, uh, the kind of communicator that you can preach for an hour and 40 minutes like Mark Driscoll would um, – you know, because he was a dynamic communicator. He could keep people's attention. Yeah. Um, he was a strong leader. Whether you liked him or not, he was a strong leader. Yeah. Um, so even if you're not that kind of personality, uh, th- that kind of leader, you can still lead really well if you have the right culture. And the right culture, to me, is the kind of culture that's raising up other leaders. Mm-hmm. And um, and so um, I think there is a danger of having – um, top heavy leadership where it's all about the senior leader, where it's all about where the senior leader has to be the one making decisions. And it all has to be about, um, um, what would, what would Mel say about this? And cause I want to leave lots of room within departments and within, within areas for people to go, okay, Mel not, might not make this specific decision, but he also is not going to care if I do, you know, mm-hmm. like we can deviate from the path enough that I've got some wiggle room. And I think um, there's certain kind of leaders that won't allow that. So they want to, they want to raise up leaders, but they won't let people lead when they get them in the organization. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, we, it, we have to recognize that if you're the senior leader, uh, you're going to be the dominant personality in your organization, right? Uh, Mel's on stage every, every, almost every week, not every mm-hmm. week, but almost every week, right? Preaching, communicating, setting the tone for our culture, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think of, and that's a natural thing, right? I think of Steve Jobs with Apple. He was the dominant personality at Apple, right? But Apple didn't topple when right. Steve Jobs mm-hmm. passed because while he was the dominant personality at Apple, the entire organization wasn't built on the, his back as that personality, right? It didn't fall apart. And, you know, maybe I'm overstretching the metaphor a little bit, but I think I think it holds true. Like mm-hmm. Mel will be the dominant personality at Summit as long as he is the senior pastor here. But the church itself is not built on his personality, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're on to something here because it seems to me like the reason why 
leaders might resist developing a culture of leadership is because the fear is that, well, if if I don't have top heavy leadership, then movements that I need to make are going to be way less efficient and harder to achieve and slower. And like, it'll be harder for me to steer the ship essentially. But we seem to have been able to articulate at least a couple examples like Summit and Apple, um, where... Which of course were... <laughs> We're spoken in the same <laughs> right, breath. Right. Everyone would assume that <laughs> apples to apples. Apple. Right, no, right, right. That's, that's, what I, that's what I was uh, thinking. Uh, <laughs> look, look, look for the Summit logo on the iPhone 15. That's right. Um, uh, <laughs> I do have a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is possible to maintain those efficiencies while also developing other leaders. Mm -hmm. I would say that top heavy leadership is less efficient. I would actually push back against that and say, because if, if you're, if you're a top heavy leader, then, then you have to have your hands in everything. Every decision has to go through you. Everything has to be okayed by you. Everything, you know, there's a whole lot of micromanagement that goes into that kind of thing. I think, uh, that decentralized leadership, and, and not, not in the sense of there's no clear leader, but as much as you can decentralize mm-hmm. power, it's more efficient. Yeah. Uh, when the people, you know, as a staff, when we are empowered to make decisions, like what Mel was talking about, where, you know, I, this may not exactly be the way that Mel would do it, but I know he's not going to mind if I do it this way, right? Yep. He's going to be okay yeah. with this, right? Empowering us to make those decisions actually makes things move a lot more quickly than if we were really super top heavy. And every time I wanted to to, you know, rearrange the furniture in my office. I had to go to Mel and say, hey, is it okay if I rearrange the furniture in my office? That actually slows things down. So the key there then is you have to you have to have a culture and in order for this to work, you have to have a culture in which you're able to get to know your leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so, because you have to you have to develop a level of intimacy with your leader in order to know what he would expect or what he would want. Mm -hmm. And then you can carry out efficiently and you can decentralize in kind of the same way that a computer decentralizes with its cores, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, 100 percent is about trust. Um, a senior leader has to trust the people uh, within the flow chart that he's leading or they're leading. But they have to trust the senior leader as well. And if there's a breakdown there, then you have real issues. Yeah. Okay, so this next idea um, or next role, let's say, is networker with other leaders. So a leader needs to be a networker with other leaders. Now, um, I haven't met a ton of leaders, but Mel, I've never met a leader who knows more leaders outside of his organizations than you. And so I want to know, like, when did you start doing this? Why did you do it? And what benefits has it brought you as a leader? Um, I mean, I... The reasons I do it are uh, 100% selfish. It's because I recognize my own limitations and I want to get better. Like I recognize um, I've got in, you know insufficiencies and I've got deficiencies in areas that it's like, man, I need to get better and I need to get around people that are smarter than I am and do things better than I do. Uh, so that was part of it. The other part of it was just... Um, this other selfish side of it was just I needed friends. I needed friends that were doing some of the things that I was doing. And so um, so I just started hitting people up. And, um, you know, I developed friendships with people. When I moved to Pennsylvania, I didn't know a single pastor in the state of Pennsylvania. And I just started calling people. And, I mean, sounds needy, but it was like, hey, you want to be friends? <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Can I buy you coffee and talk? And, um, and that's turned into some really beautiful friendships. But there's also a whole bunch of people 
who maybe didn't say no, but they wouldn't call me back or they, you know, it wasn't reciprocated. And so I just started building relationships and friendships. And as I was working through it, it kind of filtered into, okay, well, this person is not really a friend, but there's somebody that they can be a support at some level or, you know, that they could be a resource maybe at some point. Yeah. But this person's a peer. They're a friend. They're going to walk with me like Jonathan and David would walk together. Or, and so I would kind of let that, you know, filter itself out. Um, but it was, it was, there was nothing like, um, you know, these grand ideas of <laughs> we're going to build the organization as we build these people. You know, it was like, nope, I need people. So I'm going to go find people. Yeah. And that might play into, so if you're a leader and you're thinking, if you're trying to be strategic with your networking and you are thinking about it in terms of just purely organizational growth, that might not be the right motive right. at some level because people can tell whenever you really just want to be their friend. Uh -huh. And I think that there's something to say about that. Like there's some rapport that yeah. is built that is actually part of what it, it means to grow a network. And, you know, like when you think about, we may have talked about this last week when we were talking about church planning, but when you go to Johnstown you think, okay, I want to get to know some people here. Well, it's maybe it's in part because we're planning a church in Johnstown, mm -hmm. but it's also because a consequence of the fact that we're we, if we plant a church in Johnstown is that we're going to be in Johnstown and yep. you want to have some friends there. You want to have some people yep. to talk to. You want to have some people who know the area, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that that's all part of that. Yeah, I mean, I think for any leader, if if we don't recognize that we need other people to invest in and pour into us so that we can be better if we ha if we are naive enough to think that we can arrive at all the answers on our own then we're just i mean we're setting ourselves up for failure mm -hmm. i mean mel talks like you know he said is 100 percent selfish and I, I would push back against that actually and say if if his heart is to be a better leader and he knows that like befriending other leaders, learning from them, investing in them is going to make him a better leader, then that's good for the church. That's yeah, not mm -hmm. just good yeah, for Mel. That's true. Yeah, I would agree. Well, and, um, you know, one of the one of the consequences or one of the side effects of building those relationships with other pastors and churches and leaders is, um, you know, I do have the opportunity to preach at other churches or to do some coaching or, you know, things like that, that which I enjoy doing, but... Um, but it, what it really does, and, and this is something our board understands, that's why they give me the, the freedom to do it, is it extends the extends the influence of our church to other churches. There are churches that learn from us, that steal our ideas, and that's okay because we've stolen them. We still write back. We've stolen them from other churches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so I mean, like, it is an opportunity to grow the kingdom um, when we build relationships. And so, you know, when we isolate, I mean, there's all kinds of negative consequences for that, but when we network intentionally to build relationships it really does build the kingdom in so many ways even you know um, a couple of weeks ago i was um i was down in um the bedford area with my friend brad price who's part of the back 40 network i think brad's only missed one back 40 conference since we started but brad was telling me you know we ate lunch and he was showing me his church and we just hung out and spent yeah. a couple hours together it was really good and um and he told me he said man Thank you so much for doing Back 40. Man, I've been able to connect with Aheen Chakraborty, who pastors up uh, in the Williamsport area. Yeah. And he said, man, I've been able to connect with Aheen, and man, I love that guy. And he was just talking about their friendship and how they've been able to encourage each other and bless each other. And, and again, that was from 
us saying, hey, let's be intentional about just building some relationships. Like now Brad's influencing Aheen and Aheen's influencing Brad. And that was a result of us just saying, hey, let's be friends, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so it's not just about me. It's about what does that produce? What is the uh, what is the the ripple effect from that? That to me sounds a lot like um, this idea of the adjacent possible that Todd you were, you, you were talking mm-hmm. about yeah. recently. Do you want to tell people about that? I think that's relevant to this particular uh, idea of networking. Like before we jump into that, though, just one more thing on this. Uh, I think this has to have an effect this this desire to network with other leaders and to make friends with other pastors of other churches it has to have an effect on combating the perception like the negative perceptions that are most commonly associated with churches that are growing rapidly Mm -hmm. so for instance for any leader who is over a church that is seeing a lot of success and growth it's probably a really good idea to get out there and to make fr- like genuine, mm-hmm. authentic friendships with other leaders, because then, uh, you know, when people in the community might say, oh, well, this is going to be the new mega church, or this is this, this person's just in it to build his own kingdom or whatever, like, then you have lots of other people who can bear testimony that that's not true. That's, mm-hmm. not, that's just not the case. And so I think that that's part of it. But, uh, you know, this, this, so when it comes to the adjacent possible, we're talking about people you meet people and then those people meet other people and then good things happen. So what Todd is the adjacent possible for people who are, he may be hearing this for the first time. Well, yeah. So there's this, and I want to say, well, it's fairly in the last 20 years, maybe there's kind of been this theory that's been floated that nothing really is invented strictly speaking, but things are discovered and that every new discovery opens up adjacent possibilities, right? And so, um, for example, an easy example is the electric light bulb, okay? Thomas Edison wasn't even thinking about the electric light bulb before electricity was discovered because it wasn't even a possibility, right? But once electricity is discovered, all of these adjacent possibilities start to open up and all of these ideas start to bubble to the surface. And so... um, you know, when in terms of like what we're talking about with networking or with with spiritual things, like with what God wants to do in in your church or in your life or in your family, you know, what is that next discovery that's going to open up all of these adjacent possibilities? What conversation are you going to have with someone that's going to yeah. help you to re re reframe or see things in a new way, or you know? discover something new uh in your relationship with god or or in his character that you've not really leaned into before and then all of a sudden all of these adjacent possibilities begin to open up and so like when we're in conversation with other leaders and they see something that we don't see well then our visions expanded right and then we we're, it's new territory then you all of a sudden you go oh wait these things are possible i just didn't see it and man, so I think that's super important mm-hmm. uh, because it's so easy for us to become myopic. It's so easy for us to to have blinders on. Uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, that you mm-hmm. hear that kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really true. And and so I think it's vital for us to always be in conversation with other leaders, to always be in conversation with other people who who help to propel us forward, who help to encourage us and to give us hope, and who are you know willing to kick our butt a little bit when we need it kicked, and you know all of those things. Yeah, that's man. That's uh, that has the 
capacity, I think, to change your whole ministry and your whole life, really, if you yeah. practice that out of principle, because you have to practice out of principle, right? Because the, it is the case that you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're getting ready to go have lunch with another leader and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have lunch with them because they're going to tell me about how to navigate through a recession. Like it's yeah. not, you're not that specific. Right. You're just saying, I'm going to go have lunch with this leader because they have something that I need to know. Yeah. Like there's yeah. something that, and it doesn't matter. I, I think that you can use this principle all the way down to like maybe even young kids, like the like mm-hmm. children can, can speak wisdom and, and just in a moment they can have something that it's like. And so when I, I try to, when I'm having conversations with people, and I'm not perfect at this, but I'm always trying to get better. I'm always trying to really listen to them, to listen to them as if they have something of value that I need. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I try to kind of make that independent of who they are and what their background is or whether they even have a background, you know, like mm-hmm. for instance, if they're not a, a reputable leader or whatever it is like that, I think that it's super important to just always be looking for those things because when that door opens, it's like, that's like a revelation. Mm-hmm. That's man, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, so this next piece is mediator of creativity. So pastor as mediator of creativity. <laughs> is that I, mediator or do you squasher? What are you? Squasher of creativity? Probably, That's how it's viewed sometimes in our church. It probably depends on the temperament. Um, but yeah, okay, so somebody comes to you and they have this idea of what they want to do on a weekend that they think that will really add the salt and pepper to the worship experience. Yeah. And they're like, okay, it's, it's, it's maybe it's way different from what something that we've normally done, but they think it's a good idea. They've taken ownership of it. Like all this, all the right pieces seem to be in place, but you still have to mediate whether or not that makes it out of the cutting room floor. Right. So how do you do that? I don't know if there's a formula for it. I mean, like, I think my filter for those kind of things is, like, how does it land? How do, how do I feel, you know, when I hear it? Um, does it propel the gospel forward? Um, or could it be a hindrance to the gospel? Is it in alignment with who we are as a church? And if it's not in alignment with who we are, is it in alignment with who we want to be? You know, aspirationally. Like, maybe it's not in alignment with who we are right now, but it's going to help us become the church we need to be because that's something I've struggled with. Um, cause I mean, you guys are on staff. You've heard me say this. If it was up to me, if it was just strictly up to me, all we would do was we would have 30 minutes of worship and then I would preach and that would be all we would do. We wouldn't do anything else. Um, if they want to know what's going on, they'll figure it out somewhere. You know, it's on the website, <laughs> you know, like we don't need to do announcements. Um, you know, give on your way out the door. Yeah, we would keep it super simple. There would be no hazers. There would be no LEDs. There would be, you know, it would be stripped down. And so that's where, you know, um, Kendall is our young adult pastor here at Summit. And um, that's where Kendall stretches me. And, and I regulate Kendall to some degree. Like I have to, I have to, you know, pull him back at times, but I've told him like, part of your job is to propose ideas that I'm going to turn down. Um, because I need you to do that so that I can, it'll help stretch our church. It'll help, you know, us do things. That's not just about what I want, but it's about things that are going to help us be more creative and, and so that's a that is a fine line to walk, and it's a hard job because Kendall is usually the one who's proposing ideas to me that I'm like, nope, nope, we're never going to do that. That is not who we are, you know. But even things like you know, we do we use hazers and LEDs. I don't love them, but I also understand if we just do what I love, we're going to have a church of people who look exactly like me, and I don't want to have a church of people who look exactly like me. I want to reach lost people who think differently than I think, 
And if having a hazers and LED, which is, you know, pretty simple, but for some people it's a huge, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, if that's enough to get some people in the door who are different and think differently and then I'm okay with that. So I need, I need a little bit of that. Um, I don't want to just be settled on, this is who we are. This is all we do. Cause that's how churches die. Yeah. Honestly. That's really interesting. The idea of proactively installing someone who you know is going to stretch you, who you know yeah. is like, and, and even making part of that description, hey, you're, I want you to come to me with ideas that I might turn down or that I'm right. going to turn down. Like, it seems like, uh, from one perspective, it seems kind of like a waste in, in a sense of like, you know, oh, I'm going to come, would these, agree with that, I'm gonna I come up with this great idea just for you to turn it down. And you told me you were going to do it before I went to the, uh-huh. to the drawing board. Um, but at the same time, stuff does get through sometimes yeah, yeah, and, for sure. and when it does, it's, it can be transformational. Like it, you know, it's, well, and sometimes it's, um, an idea is proposed and it's like, nah, that's not going to work, but I like this part of it. Let's work through that. And then it's like, okay. So it morphs and changes and it looks a little different than what it did when it was proposed because again, it fits more closely into who we are. Um, and cause this is the, this is part of this tension as a senior leader is helping manage the expectations of what church should look like, Big C Church and your specific church. Because all of our staff, I love our staff, and generally speaking, we are very unified. But if if I let any of our staff be in charge for a day, there'd be things that they would go, yeah, I'm tweaking this or I'm adjusting this. Yeah. Because some of that is preferences and, you know, style and Um, and the truth is that's in our whole church. And so part of the job of the senior leader is to manage those expectations well and to help navigate it when those expectations aren't met, you know, for, for certain people. And sometimes we can do it successfully and sometimes we can't, but, um, yeah. One of the elements to having that kind of culture, I would say, and this is one of the things we say here is the only thing that's consistent is change. Yeah, absolutely. And so that we're not really married to any particular uh flavor thing let's say mm-hmm. or, or preference thing and having that in place is man that's really nice to have yeah. because like you can do things like you can people can just show up on a weekend um you know a good illustration is the stage tv mm-hmm. uh you know we just stopped using the stage tv a couple like last weekend or the weekend before um people just showed up to to serve and to attend and to work and we just said we're not using the stage tv this weekend and is it broken? Is something wrong? What happened? Right. Yeah. And yeah. there was like maybe a, a, a moment of, oh, and then it was like, okay, right to work. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are, I have to think there are some environments where if you drop that on a, on a church, they'd just be like, oh, I can't, I can't continue. Like, yeah. uh, you know, how is this going to, uh, that, that was my stage TV. I loved yeah. that, you know, yeah. and now that's not there. This isn't the same church anymore. And so, uh, having that piece in place, I think is yeah. vital to this idea of having the creative process working and also being able to function as a mediator of creativity. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the difference is whether or not you've created an environment where the status quo is static or whether the status quo is dynamic, yeah. right? Yeah. Our normal way of doing things is dynamic. We intentionally change things because it does change your perspective. It does help you cause you to look at things in a different way. Every creative element that you can bring out there will engage someone in a in a different way. Well, it's a different part of their brain that you're you're engaging with. When you read 
when you move things around in the lobby, as yeah. as small as that seems, it changes people's frame of reference. It and it creates an expectation that there will something new is going to happen, right? Like yeah. there's and and that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful tool that we can use as leaders. And it doesn't it doesn't cost us a lot except the willingness just to be able to try something. And if it fails, it fails, right? Yeah. Yeah. I heard a, a a definition of success recently that I really liked, and it said, success is the ability to endure a series of failures without losing motivation. Yeah, yeah I like that. You know? Yeah, and that's like a muscle, right? Because I, I like that idea, Todd, that you introduced about, well, you might change something and it might fail, but if if the people around are used to us failing, it sounds terrible, but if they get used to it, then we're more liberated to try different things. Like we're more free to try different things, mm-hmm. but you could become a place that is so terrified of failure because you've been doing the same things perfectly, exactly the same way since 1985 that, uh, when you need to change, when it's no longer tenable to to stick yeah. with the old ways, uh, you're just stuck with them. You're and it's they're your source of security and peace of mind, and they're the the bulwark against the chaos of fear and anxiety that might rush in. And so, when you have someone yeah. come to you and your church is dying, and they say, "Hey." the first thing you need to do is change this, 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 and this. And Mel, I know you, you probably both guys have experienced this when you've tried to sort of help other churches and they're just, it's like, no, I mean, I'll do anything, but I'm not right. going to do these things. Right. And so, but that's all because of that, that sense of anxiety, I think. Yeah. As leaders, we can fall into the trap of thinking that people are part of my organization, my church, my whatever, because it looks like this and you, whatever that box may be. Right. Uh, and, and, the people in the pews or the or the chairs, right? They they may they may even feel that way. They may they may think I'm here because this looks like this, but that's really not the truth, mm-hmm. right? And so, when when we fall into that way of thinking, though, the then leadership becomes scared to change anything, and they're they're motivated by fear and, and wanting to maintain more than they are wanting to grow, and then then things start to atrophy. Um, and you know when you have a leader who who is willing to make those changes there will be pushback cuz people do i mean we get yeah. but but what will happen then will there be a maybe a, some people who leave yes unfortunately that is the case but by and large what people will discover is those weren't the things that were really important to me in the first place mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the relationships that that i have here it's the it's the teaching of god's word it's the you know it's and so uh i think a lot of times we we fail to make change or to to try things um because we've we've really bought into a lie honestly and then we prevent that discovery of the fact of the real reasons why we're here and i think that that discovery is necessary to the vital health of a congregation 100%. for sure you know, let me go back. You, you, we were talking about, um, you know, the we have to lose sometimes or we have to fail sometimes. I think how we handle the small failures determines overall success because I think there are churches that would say they're successful. Um, they're successful in the little things because they're not getting pushback on stuff, but overall they're failing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So overall the direction of their leadership or their church or whatever it might be is going in the wrong direction overall but they trick themselves because they're like, well, everybody's happy, everybody's satisfied, and it's because of, um, we're, we're, we can't see the forest for the trees. Um, and and I think part of that is, 
um, you know, you were talking about the Todd, the difference that it makes when people expect change. Mm-hmm. But part of that, I think, is a is oh, it speaks to the leadership too. I think one of the reasons I want us to have a culture of change is so our people understand that we're we can we can change things uh, without having a congregational vote. That, you know, like I don't have to get approval from every department and every area and every leader in order for us to say, hey, we're going to paint the piano or we're going to get a new drum cage or we're going to, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I don't have to have the ladies permission who sit at the table in the lobby before every service and drink coffee. You know, I don't have to ask their permission about changing the table out. Um, And so I think there's something about having a culture of change that – speaks subtly or maybe not so subtly to the leadership and the organization too. And for some churches that wouldn't work because they are a congregationally led church. Um, But I think, you know, for me, that's something that's I'm conscientious about. Like I want to remind people like (laughs) 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 there's, I don't want to say who's in charge, but you know, I want to remind people, Hey, we're not a democratic Republic. Right, like we are not a place where you get to vote on what color the carpet's going to be or what color the walls are going to be. Yeah, like in the kingdom of God, I I believe that we do our best to hear from God, and when we blow it, we're going to own it. When we're stupid and fail, we're going to own it. But it requires trust on their part and on our part. So yeah, and so I mean, we have to be good stewards of what. God's entrusted to us, right? Right. Like if if Mel goes off the rails, there there is a a system in place whereby he can be called to account for those right. things. It's not like when when Mel says you know talks about being in charge. It's not like you know unchecked power, right? That's not what we're I'm talking. A, I'm a dictator, but I'm right. a benevolent dictator, yeah, right? So that's not what we're talking about. I love my subjects, uh, but. But oftentimes, yeah. <laughs> One of our core values yeah. here is unchecked power. Unchecked. That's right. That's yeah. <laughs> but often what happens, though, is uh, that leaders can be handcuffed because, yeah. you know, there's just so much. And so even in a congregationally led church, that congregation can choose to empower their leadership. Absolutely. In, you know, it, so it's, it's not, uh, but, but it requires a leader to be a good steward. Uh I, in my experience, those folks who would feel as if every decision of the leadership has to be run through them uh, will kill a church, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, so yeah. this is a this is possibly an unpopular proposition, but uh, do you think that congregationally led churches? Do you think that there's a kind of degenerate person who is attracted to those churches like a bug light? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I would not have phrased it that way, wow. but yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, and we've had people that have left our church and they've said things like, um, I'm going to go to a church where I get a say on where my money goes. And it's like, well, you do get a say on where your money goes here, but you, you can't designate it to punish me, you know, because yeah. there's mm-hmm. some churches it's like, well, I'm going to give to the youth fund and then it's going to hurt the general account. And then you're going to have to listen to what I have to say. It's like, wow, that feels like the heart of Jesus to me. Right. Like that sounds like something Jesus would say. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I do think there are people that are like they just I think they have a misperception of the way church leadership should be. 
and maybe even misperception about a leader. Yeah. And and so they yeah they're attracted to that because they go hey I need a voice and I you know we're gonna rise up right. or whatever you yeah know, and there I mean there are there are, there are just people who who want power you know mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think that that's ever a healthy thing in in a church like I know that like for me as a leader I want to be influential but I don't want to ever be guilty of chasing influence right mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, a good way of putting it and and I think sometimes people are chasing influence rather than living in ways that create influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's a dangerous thing, and whether it's the pastor or whether it's an element of, you know, certain people in your church who, you know, want influence but uh, don't have the the depth of character to go along with it. So how do you distinguish the difference there? Like, so one of the things that I think about when I try to separate those, a person who uh, wants to be influential versus a person who chases influence, I think that a person who chases influence is a person who is willing to manipulate their circumstances and their surroundings and the people around them in order to acquire that influence. Whereas a person who wants to be influential is a person who spends their time developing themselves, both in terms of their character Mm -hmm. and their abilities, and they're just sharpening themselves so that when influence is available or well i don't want to say it that way either but so that when they are they are put into a place where influence is required they can rise to the occasion or they can meet the the demand in that situation i don't know if i'm doing this right if i'm separating them properly but i think it is important to to articulate the distinction between wanting to be influential and chasing influence so yeah um i'm always um I've had people request to be on our board, like, hey, how do I get on the board at the summit? And I'm like, well, this is a good way not to be on the board, <laughs> right? Like, um, I'm not, I know the steps to get on the board, and I know the steps not to get on the board, and you are on the wrong track right now. Um, because typically, to me, if somebody's like, I want to be on the board, like, what's your motivation for being on the board? Right. Because, you know, in the church context, the me as a senior leader, um, I, I should be the lead servant, right? Like that's literally what what the word means in scripture is that I am the servant. And that's one of the things I try to do is serve our team and serve our church. And, um, and so if somebody is wanting the platform and they're wanting the board and they're wanting, that makes me a little nervous. It's like, okay, do you know what you're asking for? And you know what the requirements are? And are you just after authority? Are you just yeah. after influence? So that makes me a little nervous, you know, when somebody is seeking that. I've been uh, I've been thinking about John chapter thirteen a lot lately, so where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right? Mm-hmm. And in this story, Jesus, of course, is sitting at the head of the table because he is the master and the teacher. <laughs> uh, and you know, Scripture says that he gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, wraps the towel around himself, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Uh, and then at the end of this scene, it says that he put his garment back on and sat down in his seat. He was comfortable in both places. Yeah. When you know, he, when when the call comes for you or I to lead, it, we should be able to walk in confidence. If God has placed me here, I'm going to lead to the best of my ability. I'm going to lead with confidence. I'm going to lead with the knowledge that He is with me, 
And when it is time for me to step down from that and put the towel of the servant on and wash the feet of those around me, I'm comfortable doing that too, yeah. right? Yeah. There's, there's no place that I am unwilling to serve. And I think that that really, to me at least, typifies the difference between those who would be chasing after influence and those who simply have a heart to be influential. If that, if, if yeah, so it's it's about the process and not about the platform. So imagine, um, imagine if uh, you have someone has a calling. Let's say they want to lead worship. Um, that's like that's what they feel that their calling is, mm-hmm. but they don't have a platform from which to lead worship. A person who's doing it with a certain degree of health would be practicing their craft, even mm-hmm. if there's no one around to listen yep. to it. Like they just love the craft. They love the process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you put it in like a preacher's context, um, this is the kind of person who would write, you know, 200 sermons, even if they've never preached to anyone. Like mm-hmm. they're just, they're just doing it because of the process so that if, you know, if for some reason, you know, a platform shows up in their future, they're comfortable in that position like you articulated. Um, but they're also comfortable not in that position because yeah. it's not about the platform. It's about the process itself. It's the, the, it's the love for what it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. The calling looks like the love for what it is that you're doing rather than the love for the influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Um, and again, I've talked to people who we're like, well, I would never preach at a church. I would never preach at a youth group, or you know, I really want to preach at a uh, and on a Sunday morning. It's like, no, you are missing it. Like your heart is wrong, and you are not cut out for this because, again, they were chasing the platform, they were chasing the influence, and um, and I think like what you just articulated, it's about being a servant. It's about saying, God, whatever you call me to, I'm going to be faithful to do it, no matter where it is. No matter how yeah. big the platform or how small the platform. Well, you know, it's like the that person who comes to you and says, "What do I have to do to get to be on the board?" Well, you know, uh, yeah. are are they serving anywhere? Right? right? Are right. they? You know, are they are they willing to be a greeter? Are they willing to you know go and park cars in the parking yeah. lot? Are they serving back in kids? Are they? Do they have a place where they are investing in the lives of other people? Are they helping to disciple people? whether there's a spotlight shining on them or not, you know, all of those kinds of things. You know, Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, yeah. serve everybody. Yeah. Right. And so it has to start there. And that's that. And that doesn't matter what part of the church you find yourself in, right? Whether you're the you know, brand new, first time on the, you know, that they, you know, you just gave your life to Jesus. Your call is to serve, or whether you are the senior pastor, and you know, your call is to serve. That it, that is that is the call of Christ for us. Yeah, yeah. And from a leadership perspective, it's not about making these making a person pay penance before they, you know acquire a platform it's right. not it's not about no. it's not about making them jump through hoops or walk through it's, it's about discerning whether or not their meaning is found in in the service or whether it's found in the platform mm-hmm. and yeah. i think that that's the process by which we discern the meat whether you know discern where that meaning is found for that person okay so let's take a turn here um i want to ask this question and i want to kind of frame it up a little bit because i I'm, I'm curious about this is it okay to be critical of the church, the big C church? Is it okay to be critical of the church? So pastors, I think, caution against being critical of the church because of the danger of cynicism. Um, But don't we see Paul being critical of the church throughout the New Testament? And don't we see Jesus being critical of the church in Revelation? What is the difference? 
I think it's helpful to differentiate between criticism and critique, right? Uh, because criticism comes from a place of, uh, well, like a critical heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a spirit, a critical critical spirit where there's not a there's not a desire to see it improve, only a desire to sling mud, right? Only a desire to to bring down or to um, where critique, on the other hand, uh, you know. Go back to your example about Paul. You know, yeah, absolutely. Paul levied some criticisms against the churches that he he wrote to, um, and even against church leadership. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, he I opposed Peter to his face, right? Right, 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 <laughs> you right. Know? And so, um, but Paul's desire was always for the church to be whole, mm-hmm. for for there to be unity, for there to be purity, for there to be health, for there to be growth, for there to be life. Yeah, you know, and. And so, so absolutely, we, we have to speak truth, um, you know, but our call, the call is to do that in love. And so if our motivation and our desire is to see the church grow and to be healthy, well, there's plenty of room for critique, but there's no room for a critical spirit that wants to, um, wants to see someone fall or mm-hmm. wants to see someone get what's coming to them. Well, I feel like that's kind of the... You know, this idea of deconstruction is very popular in the church. Um, you know, in the wider church, we see a lot of yeah. people who were once very notable Christians, whether they're musical artists or, you know, preachers or whatever it is that have deconstructed their faith. And now, you know, what they would say, well, I'm a Christian, but it's like, well, it doesn't look like Orthodox Christianity, historic Orthodox Christianity, because it's so different. And I think, I think what you're talking about is true. I think they have criticize the church with the wrong spirit. Yeah. Um, and it's not that the church can never be wrong. I mean, um, the church was responsible, responsible for the inquisitions. That probably was not that a was great not thing. Good. That yeah. was not a highlight not a good of look. church history, right? <laughs> the uh, crusades. The crusades. Yeah. Yeah. The church, the, the Christian colleges that their uh, mascot was a crusader. It was like, ah, I went to one. Eh, I, don't, I don't know if we should go that direction so <laughs> the church can be wrong yeah um but it's about am i like you said am i am i do i have an affection for the bride of christ i mean right yeah and um and if somebody is in conflict with my wife they're in conflict with me right and so i don't know i feel like in today's culture it's so easy to go oh well i love god but i hate the church it's like well that doesn't work like that like that's not how yeah that's not how this happens. So. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of working to fix their marriage, they've gotten a divorce. I mean, right, that, right, that's, right. that's the, Absolutely. you know, I've kissed Jesus goodbye. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so, um, this is a, this is an issue. Like, <laughs> is that his new book? <laughs> no, I hope not. <laughs> oh man. Um, for someone like myself, I, this is an issue that I kind of struggle with because I'm aware of how just how vastly ignorant I am that I can't even get through the day without being critical of myself and my trying to get closer aligned with what is true. Mm-hmm. So I believe all sorts of things that when checked against the plumb line of truth, it's like, okay, no, that's wrong. Move over. And so I, it's, it's hard for me to keep from doing this also to the church. Um, so here's what I do. Step one, uh, if it's a doctrine or an idea that has that's like old, that's you know gone through generations and generations of brilliant thinking men and women, I probably shouldn't criticize it without first learning about it. Mm-hmm. So even if my desire is to make the church better, 
this is something that has been around for a very long time. So I need to figure out why it's been around for a very long time yeah. before I even start talking about it. Yeah. But here's the thing. When you're just constantly thinking about this stuff, it's so easy to come off cynical. It's so easy to appear cynical mm -hmm. because you're just, you're, you're, you're trying to, like I said, you're trying to use the plumb line of truth, which I don't even think we have a perfect purchase on that. Right. I mean, we can try. We have the scriptures to, to, to right. get us there, but our understanding of the scripture is not infallible. Um, I, I don't know. Sometimes I find myself artificially holding back because I don't want to appear cynical. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if, it's, if this is just a problem that's unique to like a small portion of people that are in the church or or what like that's, that's why i'm i'm picking your brains for an answer on this because uh i don't want to appear cynical but at the same time i also don't think it's i think it's disingenuous if i if i don't talk about a certain thing because it appears like criticism mm -hmm. so i don't know how to yeah walk that um i mean i think i think one of the i think one of the one of the keys is to make sure in your communication in that regard that you either A, have a viable solution to propose, right? A viable alternative to propose, uh, or be humble enough to admit, I don't have the answer to this, but it's troubling to me, right? And I think that, that humility will will insulate us in, in a lot of ways from cynicism. Mm -hmm. I also believe that as followers of Christ, we all, I mean, look, if Jesus is alive, there is hope. And right. so there's, I don't think there's any room in a Christian worldview for cynicism. And so if we, if we keep that truth framely in, in reference yeah. and we walk with humility, I, I think that we can, we can communicate hard truths without coming off as cynical or harsh. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's an ebb and flow to it. There's times that um, you're going to get it wrong and times that you're going to get it right. And I think what Todd said is true. If we're humble about it and we're not um, dogmatic that, well, this is true and I know for sure it's true. And But if we can if we can hold cling tightly to the things we know for sure are true, right, the tenets, the core right. tenets of our faith, and we can hold loosely to the things we're unsure about, um, I think that makes a huge difference. And I think part of the problem with like the deconstruction movement and you know some yeah, the difference between being critical, having a critical spirit and critiquing is how dogmatically we believe what our truth is. Yeah. you know, well, this is what the real truth is, and you're wrong. If we can hold on loosely to that stuff, it just it helps people receive it better. It helps foster dialogue instead of, um, confrontation. So, yeah, I think ultimately the problem is that the, the people, these people who are caught up in the deconstruction, these people aren't Martin Luther. Okay. Like just, <laughs> some of them probably have never even been to a church. Um, yeah, but they, they act as like a camouflage that conceals genuine, authentic critique. Uh -huh. Like it's yeah. because, because crit the critical spirit is in the zeitgeist of the culture, right. mm -hmm. critique is, almost labeled that way sometimes. And so if we can figure out a way to create separation, because this could become a real problem if, yeah. if, if it's, if we get to the place where we can't critique anymore yeah. without <laughs> looking like a deconstructionist, that's not a, that's not a recipe for success. Right. Um, so if we can figure out a way to separate those things, 
that's easily noticeable because here's the thing. Okay. I get that. Like, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in conversation with you guys, you can tell the difference just because you know me well enough, whether or not I'm being cynical or whether I'm trying to critique. But right. if I'm, if I'm in a restaurant yeah. and we're talking and people over here who know none of us, you know, and someone's like on the fence about whether or not they want to become a Christian and they hear a certain kind of conversation, yeah. they might be like, Oh, well, you know, that's, yeah. that's making me unsure. And yeah, so there's gotta be some, maybe there's like a, a judiciousness with which we decide where to have these conversations. I'm not yeah. really sure how we do it, but yeah, I think there's some wisdom in that. I mean, you, you should know when and where to raise a critique. Uh, you said, you know, Paul was very clear about not wanting to cause others to stumble, you know, not being a stumbling block to, and of course he's talking about, you know, those who are young in their faith, but, um, you know, I think it, it holds true outside of that as well. Like if there's someone who doesn't know Christ, I don't want my actions to push them further from the truth of who Jesus is. And so, yeah, I think we have to exercise wisdom in that way. The unfortunate reality, you know, there's the old news adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason we hear so much of this is because um, it, it's attention grabbing. Yep. It, 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 it's good for the news cycle, right? It's good for clicks. It's great clickbait, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that for for every loud deconstructionist that's out there, there are, you know, a thousand people who have given their lives to Jesus and are growing in intimacy and growing to know him. For every terrible story we hear about a pastor who's had a moral failure or um, has, you know, had to step down from leadership or whatever, there are there are a thousand pastors out there who are quietly and faithfully serving Jesus. The church is way healthier than the the news media and and you know your Facebook feed would lead you to believe. And and I think that as followers of Christ, we have to be, you know, and as church leaders, we have to be communicating that reality and making yeah. sure that, you know, because I think that as much as anything will will combat the cynicism that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Wow. We did not get as far as I thought we would, but um, I think that's pretty good unpacking of a lot of these things. Um I really appreciate. I can't believe we didn't get as far as we thought we could with three preachers (laughs) talking together. That's weird. Yeah. Normally we're very succinct with our time. And it's funny because whenever I'm preparing for these podcasts, I'll, uh, come up with like 10 questions and then i always feel like oh what if i don't have enough like what, what if we finish early and uh we just need to do like a four-hour podcast sometime yeah yeah i mean joe rogan experienced church version or i'd be okay with that get a few bottles of water and just i was I'm glad you said water i was wondering where you're going with that one <laughs> yeah i would have to probably edit that out <laughs> this this isn't a reform podcast yeah. <laughs> on that note thank you for joining us for the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.